Welcome to the Leading by History podcast, where we seek to take our listeners on a journey through history, highlighting information which is most crucial for changing our world, one episode at a time. Welcome to the new season of the Leading by History podcast. I'm your host, education specialist Masayahu Israul, and today we have a very, very, very informative show. Um, it, it's, it's really going to captivate the minds of those who have been thinking about these things for, for quite some time. Uh, I'm going to bring on to the show Dr. Lucas Morell, and he is the professor of politics and the head of the politics department at Washington and Lee University. And so he teaches government and political philosophy, constitutional law, Black American politics, politics and literature, et cetera. Now, he received uh, a Bachelor of Arts from Claremont McKenna College, but has a Master of Arts and PhD from Claremont Graduate University. And he has, he's the editor and author of several books. He edited uh, Ralph Ellison and the Raft of Hope, A Political Companion to Invisible Man. Uh, he's the author of Lincoln's Sacred Effort, Defining Religion's Role in American Self-Government. He published and edited a volume of scholarly essays called Lincoln and Liberty, Wisdom for the Ages, and is the co-editor of The New Territory, Ralph Ellison and the 21st Century. We welcome to the show Dr. Lucas Morell. Good morning, and thank you for coming on to Leading by History. Good morning. Good morning. Happy New Year, everyone. Well, I, I, I thank you for coming on to do this interview with us because, you know, we had the opportunity to meet when we were doing a colloquium with uh, teaching American history. And uh, I love the way that you ran the colloquium and all of the, the teachers who I invited to be a part of it, um, they, they raved that it was the best uh, professional learning opportunity that they had had in a long time. And, Great to uh, hear. So, yeah, man. I mean, it was really good. I was I was attempting to figure out how you were going to get us to discuss twelve documents for seven and a half hours. <laughs> uh, you know, no movies, no videos. Nope. You know what I'm saying? Yep. And um and and man, we really you know expanded our minds. Uh, I saw a lot of brilliance come out of those uh, teachers who were there, and so we've sort of kept up with each other since that time. And, um, you know, not always seeing things exactly the same. I always thought that your perspective was valuable and, and most interesting. And so today I have you on the show so that we can talk about uh, President Abraham Lincoln uh, and his development of racial ideas over time. So, you know, I found it interesting that you made it clear to me uh, when we were speaking that you were not a historian, but you were one who dealt in the area of politics and, and understanding the political realm. What What is the terminology for a person such as yourself? <laughs> uh, let's see. So my training, as you pointed out, is in uh, politics or what people call political science or government. And so my uh, approach to questions of race uh, equality, uh, all the things that are in the air today um, uh, are from a political theory perspective. They're more political philosophy 
as opposed to um, history. History is about uh, what, at least in the present, we think happened in the past, and how are we to interpret those events, uh, you know, causes and effects, and you know, which ones are the most important, et cetera, which had the greatest impact. Whereas political theory, political philosophy, political science studies what we call regime questions. In other words, what kind of society do we live in? What are the structures and principles that inform and guide it? And so we try to uh, take a more overarching perspective on, on the, the cause and effects that are happening on the ground. And we say, hmm, well, why, what led to this cause? We are the, uh, if history is about efficient causes, to use Aristotle's terms, political philosophy is about final causes. So we have, I, I don't, for mm. example, we have this crazy debate still. What was the, the, the meaning of the Civil War? What was the cause of the Civil War? And, you know, the prevailing, you know, battle is between, you know, slavery and states' rights. And, of course, you know, slavery is the final cause as opposed to mm -hmm. states' rights, which was the efficient cause and, or, or, you know, the, the attack on Fort Sumter. These are what actually people did. But the final causes are for why they did it. Why were they so mm -hmm. bent on states' rights? Or why did they decide to shoot first at Fort Sumter in South Carolina? It was because of an institution they were trying to protect. And that institution, mm -hmm. even more broadly than slavery, was white supremacy. And so mm. uh, in, from my perspective, what I, what I do is I look at it from a political theory perspective. Uh, I brought up Aristotle. I'm going to bring him up right away just to make something super clear. Uh, when you mm -hmm. talk to anybody about the meaning of the Civil War and what led to secession and the, the, the attempt to form a separate country, the Confederate States of America, what Aristotle mm -hmm. says is you don't have revolutions and you don't have civil wars unless there's a disagreement about the nature of justice, the meaning of justice. Mm -hmm. It's not bad guys versus good guys. Of course, the other guys mm -hmm. are bad, right? That's how we always position it. Anytime you're in an mm -hmm. argument, you're great, they're an idiot. In the Civil mm -hmm. War, what was so important to those people down there? Was it because they were all evil and the North was all innocent? No, of course not. Mm -hmm. The reason that the Civil War happened was because there came to be in the United States two very different understandings of what the federal government owed to their American citizens. Mm -hmm. What was the nature of justice? What do I deserve as an American citizen from mm -hmm. my point of view, political philosophy looks at those disparate reasons that govern or guide how mm -hmm. people think and therefore how they act and especially how they act towards each other. I think that's very important because as a historian, I'm looking at the initial statements that you made about the Civil War being based upon the preservation of the continuance of white supremacy and yes. anything concerning states' rights was the states' rights to what? What was the, the exactly. states' rights to be able to do what? So I, I love the fact that you brought that out because I think that some of your positioning on Lincoln is going to be controversial to some who yes. expect for you to maintain that level of thinking throughout the course of Lincoln's life. And I think that because of the fact that you are a Lincoln scholar and you're approaching it from the perspective of looking at the the politics behind the why people do what they do in yes. specific moments as opposed to the big idea, I think that's very important as well because historians, we can draw big conclusions and look at big concepts and big ideas and settle it on, well, white supremacy and racism, the foundation of, of all of these things, whereas you're taking the time walk through 
individual ideas and struggles of people during a climate where this may be an overarching theme, but they have their own unique struggle and and battle to understand life for themselves individually. So, and Absolutely. and how that yeah how that plays out in their actions. So this this is very good. Now Eric Foner, who's one of the most respected scholars in in United States history, he he spoke to us several years ago, back around 2010, 2012. And he talks about, uh, when he releases a a new book, he talks about a new way to start viewing Abraham Lincoln. And he says, look, you know, out of the 10,000 volumes that may exist and and articles and things that have been written about Lincoln, he's saying, I'm not saying that I'm going to come up with the one new way but mm-hmm. I think his approach to it was really how can we see the development of Lincoln over time? So what I want to do with you first is I want to step into history just a little bit sure. because I want I want to talk about Lincoln being raised in that in that cabin, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. as as a young man, and what because I think that that's a part the the folk who want to push there there are two ideas that are, you know what I'm saying, really seen as, as the the ways in which to capture Lincoln. On the one side is that, you know, Lincoln is this great emancipator, and, you know, he's this man of heart who always believed in justice and always believed in doing what was right. And the other side is more the demonization of Lincoln saying that he was always a racist from day one. He supported and, and promoted white supremacy every step of the way and i think that it's it's important to understand that there may be some things in the middle ground so what do you know about lincoln uh coming up as a young man uh in that log cabin about you know his ideas of of race and family his attitude during that time is there any information that exists that you've come across that that tells us about young Lincoln, early Lincoln, uh, the child, the world that he's sure. coming into. Go ahead. The, the first thing people need to know, and historians as well as political scientists know this, uh, any serious historian and political scientist knows this about Abraham Lincoln, is that the hardest thing to figure out uh, in terms of hard primary source evidence is Lincoln's upbringing uh, as a as a youth in Kentucky, where he was born, Indiana, where he was raised, you know, basically middle school, even though he didn't go to school for very much, uh, middle school age through through what we would consider high school, and then they finally in Indiana, and then they finally moved uh, as an, when he was an adult uh, to Illinois. The early Lincoln is very sparse to recover, and the recovery mm-hmm. we owe to his longest serving partner in the law a guy named William Herndon. When Lincoln Mm. was assassinated in 65, I'll try to make this short, he started visiting people, writing to people, and and basically he had the idea that I'm going to write a biography of this guy that I was a fellow lawyer with. And, you know, we we, um, served together. Um, He was the junior partner. William Herndon was the junior partner. Uh, And Herndon started interviewing people who knew Lincoln, as we say today, back in the day. And so he's Mm -hmm. interviewing people in 65, 66, and later. And these people are therefore recovering 
supposedly conversations they had with Lincoln or reminiscences. This is called reminiscence material. They're mm-hmm. re- rehearsing conversations, things they claim they knew about Lincoln's habits, his ideas, his activities that happened way back in the 18 teens and 20s, uh, mm-hmm. and maybe the 30s, right? So 30, 40 years after the fact, people are recalling, oh, yeah, Lincoln was this. Lincoln believed that. You know, he always claimed he was going to, you know, hit that thing and hit it hard, that thing being slavery. Pretty sure mm-hmm. he didn't say that that early in life, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so anything that you hear somebody say, including me, about what mm-hmm. Lincoln believed when he was 14 or 24, for that matter, you have to take with a serious grain of salt because almost all of it is hearsay. It isn't written down. How many of the things, how many of the things that you believe? You actually have written down in your house. If I were to go to your house among your papers and effects, what would I learn about you simply by what is on paper? Probably like half of a percent of the things. I mean, we'd learn more about the objects that are in your home probably than anything. I mean, do you have a diary? I don't have a diary. Lincoln didn't right. have a diary. By the way, if right. we found a diary that, that was written by Lincoln, I will tell you right off the bat, it's a fraud. <laughs> he wasn't oh, that kind no. of guy, right? He was not right. going to reveal himself on paper and let that be discovered by anyone. He was the most shut-mouthed man, one of his uh, associates once said, the most shut-mouthed man he had ever met. In other words, Lincoln loved to keep people uh, you know, at a distance by telling these you know, long, comical stories, uh, but he didn't reveal himself uh, to much to anybody. Uh, so anyway, so the early Lincoln, I think one of the best accounts we have uh, by two historians, Michael Burlingame and Doug Wilson. Michael Burlingame wrote a, almost a 1,500-page, two-volume biography of Lincoln, where it, Michael Burlingame, I'm pretty sure, has read more and forgotten more of Lincoln than anybody alive right now. Mm-hmm. And in his mm-hmm. book, he says from what he can gather – that what shaped Lincoln's belief is certainly with regards to slavery was how he himself was treated by his father, basically being mm. rented out to other people to work and right. never right. actually gaining the, the income from his labor. Right. Okay. Well, of course, right. Lincoln took for granted that Pop put a roof over his head and fed him and clothed him, et cetera. But the fact of the matter is Lincoln early on recognized his great contribution and, and in terms of gaining meaning out of life was not going to become uh, not going to come from farming. He hated farming. Right. It was backbreaking work. He could do it because he was strong and manly, if you will. But he figured out early enough in life that the key to his future was his mind. That was one of the key reasons, by the way, that he didn't drink. He was a teetotaler. Mm-hmm. He once said that 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 drinking made him feel flabby, and he didn't mean flabby in the gut. He wasn't worried about mm-hmm. the six pack. He was worried about the effect it had on his mind. And he didn't like how capricious nature was uh, in terms of doing all this work, planting, and then overnight, if you have this horrible storm, seeing all the seeds wash away. Great. Now what do I do? How do I eat, et cetera? And so Lincoln figured out early on that his mind was the key to, to, to fulfilling his ambition uh, and, and not uh, the farm. And so Burlingame thinks that one of the early reasons why Lincoln had an animus against slavery, notice not an animus against racism per se, but just an animus against slavery, was he mm-hmm. just thought, good grief, if you work, if it's your own hands and brains that, are, that go into benefit. something, you should receive the benefit for it. Now, right. to getting, circling back to your question, growing up in Kentucky, 
way out. I mean, think about Little House on the Prairie on a bad day, mm-hmm. right? That's the frontier. How many black people is mm-hmm. Lincoln, how many is he running into in Kentucky, in Indiana? Mm-hmm. Very, very few. So odds are he's, his mindset, his, his um, feelings are going to be shaped by the world around him. And that world predominantly is a white-centered. I won't call it a white supremacist, but it's certainly a white-centered mm-hmm. world, a world where blacks mm-hmm. don't really factor in and, and won't even factor in much in Illinois, where he does meet more blacks. But the fact of the matter is, is he crossed paths with them very little. And so it is not surprising, it shouldn't be surprising to any of us, that when we read the actual things he says about blacks as a race, as a people, and their connection to this country, it's going to be at, at somewhat of an arm's remove, if you will. Okay? I want us to talk about the most provocative things he said about blacks right. to see if Correct. we Correct. can unpack right. that and then and try to make sense of that in light of what we know about him later, you know, issuing the Emancipation Proclamation, um, turning to uh, uh, abolition as, an, as a, a means to helping secure victory in the war, working in 64 and 65 to get the 13th Amendment passed, uh, and, and working for the black vote and black education, late, things we find Lincoln saying and working towards both publicly and privately late in life, deep into right. his presidential year, as opposed to th- those things not popping, popping up at all and certainly not a priority for him when, for example, we look at his state legislative life, which is in the uh, mid uh, to late 1830s and up through 1842. Well, I think that it's important, though, from the perspective of history, to be able to gain insight into the individual before we begin to thoroughly examine his his later ideas, right? Our current thinking is based upon experiences of life, things that we've said, seen, people with whom we've discussed. Our life experiences help to formulate, you know, our opinions, and then therefore our opinions and and thoughts uh, tend to influence the way that we act. And so. You know, you you state rightfully so that there is only anecdotal information about Lincoln from the earliest age. And, you know, I wanted to pose that question for you as a Lincoln scholar to see if there was there were things that you knew beyond the one room log cabin, you know, in the western parts of of Kentucky in 1809. So the, the, the thing is, is that in 1808, though, the import of slaves was, you know, officially prohibited. And uh, as you state, where Lincoln was during that time period, he wouldn't have had the same viewpoint or even the experience that others who would have been in the Deep South would have had. And so, you know, his influences on life and his ideas about people and how to treat people and deal with people come from his interactions with family and friends of family. Now, George Nagler says that Lincoln politically and morally detested the system of slavery throughout his life. And the issue that I have with that is is we have to then determine what are we considering throughout his life, right? You know, yeah. I, I, I went to a funeral recently, you know, and, and I always find myself when I attend funerals at, at certain institutions, they always say, that the person came to God or came to Christ at an early age, right? I, I hear that moreover when mm-hmm. I when I attend funerals. But I'm like, well, what does that mean, right? Like, were they a religious person throughout the course of their entire lives because they came to know, you know, God or whatever at an early age? Mm-hmm. Did they have any time periods in which they veered off and, and didn't know God, per se? Like, how does that turn into where we are today? And so I think it's the same thing when we're dealing with Lincoln is that, 
we want to capture and try to capsulate the, the, the person. And I think that you did a good job at sort of guiding us through, you know, early life uh, with Lincoln. Now, when you start talking about his life and legislature and you say that that's not really as important, let's begin then to start looking at, at Lincoln as he begins to, to gather himself to the 1820s, to the 1830s, mm -hmm. um, when he starts to take those, those private trade trips on flatboats, right? Right. To, to New Orleans, right? Mm -hmm. And then starting to see how his opinion and what some call the aversion towards slavery begins to develop as he, he travels and, and it leads to confrontations with, you know, people that were in a plantation way of life. Now, you stated correctly that he's always had the long-lasting idea that when people worked, that they should receive the benefit of their work, and that from his early years, when his father sent him off, right, to do, you know, farmhand work, and then right. came back and, and didn't receive the benefit of that, that began to develop a certain idea in his mind as far as labor, right, which right. would influence the concept of bondage no matter what race. But you've made a distinguishing remark between the two that, you know, there's a difference between Lincoln's view possibly on bondage and Lincoln's view on race. And I, and I, For sure. I, want, I want to work into that a little bit. What do you see as the earliest forms of Lincoln beginning to espouse what he believes about the race issue in America? I would say that um, the, the probably the most important thing to consider in uh, when we read anything that Lincoln wrote in the way of a letter or a speech, which are the most you know it's the clearest expression of a person's mind is what they say and what they write. They could be lying, sure. So we have to consider more than one thing. So over time, what Lincoln reveals about what he what, what's in his head and heart are the things that he says and the things that he writes correspondence and speeches. Mm -hmm. uh, also, think about audience. As soon as I said speeches, I reminded myself, and we should all remind ourselves, huh, that's for a particular audience, isn't it? Mm -hmm. A public speech as opposed to a private letter. Okay, So we always have to think about audience when it comes to Lincoln, uh, when it comes to anybody in terms of what they say. Uh, mm -hmm. The thing to consider for Lincoln in terms of, of how the race issue comes up is the constraints of the regime. What do I mean by that? In the United States, we have set up a form of government that we say is based on the consent of the governed. What's the most famous motto for the revolution? No taxation without representation. It's not that taxation is bad, even though we don't like it. It's just you can't take, you can't reach into my pocket, my pocketbook, my wallet without asking my permission, right? Can't take what I own without my saying that you may do so. You don't have a natural right, a God-given right to take what isn't yours. So when it comes to race and it, when it comes to rights, the federal system of government in the United States imposed a constraint upon people who in their state may have banned slavery for what, a host of reasons um, and wish it would be banned in other states, but they don't have the authority to do so under the federal constitution. So when Lincoln talks about race and when he talks about slavery, when he talks about rights, it always, you always have to remind yourself, huh, there's what Lincoln may want to do, and then there's what Lincoln believes he can do. 
according to a system of government that requires that you give your rulers permission to act. And as you pointed out, in 1808, the year before Lincoln is born, the Congress bans not the slavery in the not American slavery because they don't have that authority under Article One of the Constitution. They do have the authority, and they don't have to act on it, but the earliest they could act on the authority to ban the importation of slaves, the international slave trade, is January 1, 1808. And that actually happens under the slaveholding president, Thomas Jefferson. That was a statute he signed in 1807 to take effect as soon as possible under the Constitution. So those are the constraints that I'm talking about. And so, for example, let's, let's, let's take us... Let's take you to 1834 through 1842. These are the eight straight years, two-year terms consecutive, four of them, that Lincoln serves in the state legislature in Illinois. Why is it so rare that Lincoln says anything about black people, let alone anything about slavery? Well, starters, he lives in the state of Illinois, where slavery is already banned and is not allowed in Illinois. So it, it stands to reason that Lincoln is not, even if he wants to do, quote unquote, something about slavery, end quote, um, he's not going to be able to do that as a state legislator. They have no authority over what happens in Kentucky about slavery. Okay, Henry Clay does, but not Lincoln. So most of Lincoln's focus is on political economy, interestingly enough. And this is tied back to our discussion of Lincoln and um, you know, the right to, to earn the, the, the fruit of your own labor. He thinks mm -hmm. in the United States, and this is what made him a Whig and not a Democrat, capital D, he was a Whig, mm -hmm. the forerunner of the Republican Party, because the Whigs believed that both state and federal government should, should support and fund infrastructure and a sound currency, and that meant a national bank, so that it would provide as many opportunities as possible for the citizens to develop their talents and fulfill their ambitions economically as possible. And so Lincoln was a voracious reader, believe it or not, of political economy. When was the last political economy book that you read, right? How many of us right, have read correct. any? <laughs> but that was his, he would rather read that than a novel. He read very few novels. He loved political economy. He wanted to know what was the system that government should support that would facilitate the greatest increase of the fruits of a person's labor. And and we should promote that, okay? So no surprise, you read his speeches, the vast majority of them are about dredging rivers, supporting canals, promoting railroads, doing the sorts of things that we take for granted, right? We don't think twice about getting on a highway, flying a plane, mm -hmm. driving on, on decent roads or navigable rivers. These were practical realities for Lincoln's day and age. And he said, man, if we make it easier for the products of a person's labor to get to markets, especially domestic markets, then that would be the way that we would get to know one another because it would promote social intercourse. It would promote unity that way because we're not strangers to one another. It would help unite the country. You know, all these, you know, primary and secondary uh, effects would be a boon to this country. And so there's very little about race there. Very little about, you know, mm -hmm. uh, abolition, okay? Mm -hmm. These are subjects that come up when the uh, the opportunity, that's put that in scare quotes, to expand the country. In other words, Mexican War. Lincoln did not call that an opportunity, by the way. Uh mm -hmm. when that prospect came up, all of a sudden the question becomes, huh, will slavery be allowed in those 
in that territory. And that's where the Wilmot Proviso comes up. Your, your students know about that. And most listeners will know about that. So it's only when the area of the country that hasn't already been settled, and especially the slavery question hasn't been settled, it's only when that becomes a front burner issue do you see Lincoln weigh in. And that's when he enters national politics. And that happens in the 50s. Um, and it happens a little earlier, right? The one term he serves in Congress, 1847 to 1849, it's in that one single term that the issue of slavery comes up for Lincoln in a big way. And that has to do with the, the, the outcome of the Mexican War, which is all over but the shouting by the time he becomes a congressman. So what we're going to do right now, we're going to take a break. And sure. uh, when we come back from the break, I want to bring up something about Lincoln's friend Joshua Speed in relationship sure. to some of the things that you're talking. Uh, we'll be right back after these few moments. Welcome back to the Leading by History podcast. We are on the second side of our interview with Dr. Lucas Morell talking about the development of Abraham Lincoln and his ideas of race uh, over the period of his life and more specifically political career. Now, on the other side of the show, Dr. Morell, you were talking about Lincoln's early work in legislature and, and not really having to address the issue of, of race politically at that time, and, and very briefly in the very beginning. Now, just to, to go back, Joshua Speed is a friend of Lincoln's uh, in Kentucky. And, you know, as Lincoln is making the journey back and forth, going from Kentucky and handling legislative business in different parts of the nation, he actually encounters what he talks about to Speed's sister. I think he writes the letter to Speed's half-sister, and he talks about seeing these 12 chained Negroes, right? Yes. And he says that these 12 Negroes, that they were, they were chained together and that they bound by the wrist, and uh, they were sort of strung along, as he said, quote, as so many fish on a trot line. Yes. And he says that he understands that in this condition, that they were being separated forever from the scenes of their childhood, their friends, their fathers, their mothers, brothers, and sisters, and many of them from their wives and children, and going into what he says, quote, is perpetual slavery, where the lash of the master is proverbially more ruthless and unrelenting than any other where. Right. So this is September of 1841. So at this time, Lincoln is aware of bondage and of its effect on people, you can see from the letter itself that he's not speaking to Speed's sister to say, what, what was this that I saw? Uh, you know, what is this called? Who, who are these darker people? Exactly. I've never seen this before. He obviously is aware. And so he goes on to emphasize what many later would use to talk about the happy slave. So I, I'm, I'm still struggling with this portion. I, I know what Lincoln means, I think, but I think right. that many have used this to prop up the idea of the happy slave. But he says, yes. yet amid all these distressing circumstances, 
we would think then that they were the most cheerful and apparently happy creatures on board. And quotes, God tempers the wind to the shorn lamb. Yeah. He says that, you know, he, he renders the worst human conditions tolerable while he permits the best to be nothing better than tolerable. I struggle with that portion. So when you're saying that he never had to address, and this is where the historian and, and the political scientist, if you will, have this discussion, because while you're looking very practically at him having to confront the idea of slavery in a position of power, I'm looking at him as a human being. And mm -hmm. I'm seeing how he clearly knows that these are Negro people, that they are not his equal, right, and understands that they are being sent into what he determined himself to be a perpetual slavery, yes. where the lash, you know, was more ruthless and, and unrelenting. So how is it that even though Lincoln may not be forced to deal with the idea of slavery directly, how do we not hold Lincoln accountable. I mean, are we going to say that Lincoln was just pragmatic, right? That and, and that he was just about, you know, handling the business at the time and, hey, don't put more weight on him because this really wasn't his battle at the time. Like, walk me through your perspective sure. there as a Lincoln scholar. Yeah, this is a, it's a, it's a very, um, one of the few times we see Lincoln even describing the condition of racial slavery in, in any way with any great sympathy. I mean, he does both, right? It, it seems like he repeats the trope of the happy, uh, quote-unquote, Negro, okay? Right. Wow, slate, trot, you know, like so many fish on a trot line, it, it doesn't seem to bother them, and they're making music, and look at that, you know. Uh, <laughs> and yet, he look at how he describes slavery. Right. Lash. I mean, you just just that word, the you know, what, what's the, the English term onomatopoeia? Uh, the very right. word indicates how harsh it would be to be struck with that whip. Right. Mm -hmm. So the fact that Lincoln is both sympathetic and yet he recounts what we consider to be the, the, the racist trope of, of the happy Negro. Uh, the content mm -hmm. slave, right, uh, shows us there's something deeper going on here. He isn't merely a, a, a rank white supremacist. I don't even think he is a white supremacist. I want us, I want us to get to that. Mm -hmm. Right. The We're fact that he can show both sympathy and then give us this trope shows that he is well. He is self-conscious about the very way he's describing them. The date is important. That date mm -hmm. in 1850, 1841, Lincoln is struggling emotionally with his relationship with Mary Todd. And he's writing, and I think it's also important that he's writing not to a, a fellow male, but a female. And therefore, someone he believes would be more open to hearing a more emotive description of what he experienced than just talking to his best friend, Joshua Speed. And so how he describes the condition of slavery he does on purpose to enlist the emotions and feelings of Mary Speed and to say, look, you, you, you agree with me, right? This, who would want to be a slave? It is awful. The, the worst descriptions probably don't even get to the reality of slavery in this country. And he says, if we're on the same page on that, would you agree with me that you too would be astonished to see such a people who haven't yet experienced that, right? Because they're on their way down mm -hmm. the river, as it were. Remember, these are not people who have experienced the worst of slavery. They are going to. And Lincoln, right. look at what he attributes to them. He thinks 
if even I know how bad slavery is, and I've never been right. a slave, these black people who odds are are not as literate as Lincoln, is not as conversant with him with the literature, don't read a newspaper most likely. That Actually, that counts for most white people as well at the time. But uh, if Lincoln knows this, surely these know this. And they do not look like they're afraid of what's going to happen to them. Why do I bring up the date? Lincoln is undergoing his own emotional turmoil at the time with his on-again, off-again relationship with Mary Lincoln. He is having an extremely difficult time keeping his own life together. Things will be so bad in a few months that his friends remove sharp objects from his house because they're afraid that Lincoln's going to kill himself. So in other words, Lincoln at the time is actually undergoing severe depression, a, a melancholy he suffered throughout his life, and he is genuinely astonished. His only audience is this is the sister of his best friend, right? This isn't for public mm -hmm. consumption. So he is bearing his soul to her, and he's saying, how is it that these black people, knowing what they're about, what's about to happen to them, can keep it together mm -hmm. and put mm -hmm. on a happy face? Notice, he's not saying that they are content. But they are giving the impression that they are. How is it that they can keep it together when the only thing I'm struggling with is whether this woman is going to marry me and whether I should marry her or not, right? Something he's, he's going through. So this is a, one of the very rare moments that we see Lincoln actually bearing his heart and soul to another human being, and it is a woman. In other words, someone who for men, especially in that age, and I think it's probably still true, some for that half of the human population that is going to be able to receive sensitive, vulnerable information and not abuse it, if you will, not make, not make hay with it. Mm. So I think what we really see here is not Lincoln simply mimicking the tropes of the day, the stereotypes of the day of the contented slave. What he is actually doing is he is astonished. He cannot understand how a people knowing what's going to happen to them can put on that appearance when he himself is struggling with something far less worse, but something mm. that is driving him almost mad. I think that's what's going on there. That's very interesting. And, and I appreciate that perspective being added to really flesh out, you know, some of these ideas. Now, we know that Lincoln was an admirer of Henry Clay, Senator Henry yeah. Clay from Kentucky. And, and yep. it's one of the main reasons why he becomes a, a member of the Whig Party. Now, Clay yes. starts the Colonization Society, right, around 1816. And becomes president and, of it, yes. Right. He's, he's founder and, and leader of the Colonization Society. Now, of course, they believe that the best thing for black people in America is to be relocated to Africa even if on a voluntary basis. And so, you know, this is the reason why Liberia, Liberia is, is founded. And even some Southerners and those who are, you know, hyper-racist actually support it because they want to get this thing over with, just get these people out of here. Now, there was opposition uh, combined with less racist attitudes and more of a fear about the overall suffering of enslaved people. And many people say that Lincoln would be considered a part of that group, not the, the former, the racist attitude group that wanted to get mm -hmm. this over, but those who were thinking about the, the suffering of black people. But in the eulogy to Clay, yes. you know, Lincoln talks about Pharaoh's country being cursed with plagues and talks about the 400-year 
servitude of of the Hebrews under Pharaoh, and then he says that he hopes that such disasters never befall the United States. Yeah. But he seems to separate himself from the colonization movement in the sense because he says if, as the friends of colonization hope, the present and coming generations of our countrymen shall by any means succeed succeed in freeing our land from the dangerous presence of, of slavery. He doesn't say as we, uh, but mm-hmm. he, he, he almost puts it as they. So now slavery's front and center at this point, right? Yes. And, you know, recolonization is, is there. And we know that in 62, Lincoln calls – now, this was 52. Ten years right. later, Lincoln's calling together uh, black leaders in the country to sort of whip them up a little bit about the fact that, hey, your presence here is a real issue uh, for the country. And, yes. you know, and, and, and we think that the best thing is to actually move you somewhere else. So 1852, he seems to be sort of not taking ownership for this colonization positioning and sort of like they believe or as the, you know, the recolonizers think. Mm-hmm. And then by 1862, he's really given it to black leaders saying that, you know, if you weren't here, we wouldn't be having these problems. Right. And so it's it's going to be best to, to send you onward. Let's talk about some of the quotes and what he says here, because, you know, people do talk about him as this great emancipator. But I think that there are some things that he's saying between 62 and then the Lincoln-Douglas debates that are the issue for, for many people. So let's yeah. start talking about that piece. Yeah, let's, uh, let's do that. So listeners have to know, and this is a surprise to my students when they take my class on Lincoln. I teach a, a seminar on Lincoln um, every winter uh, here at Washington and Lee University. I'm going to do it again in a couple of weeks. It's a surprise for people to know that the great emancipator was a long-standing supporter of what we call black colonization. In other words, the relocation of black Americans to some other nation. And for Lincoln, um, he recognizes that West Africa is is a a non-starter. Liberia was already being shown to be a disaster for people who didn't grow up there to to go there. But there were, you know, not just white, but but, uh, important black people who were in favor of it, Martin Delaney being one of them. Um, there were blacks who actually thought, man, things are, we deserve our rights in this country according to this country's own claims, according to their own principles, according to their own constitutions. But whites don't want us here. This is miserable. We can't fulfill our ambition. Let's go somewhere else. Uh, they mm-hmm. had that kind of confidence in their own abilities that they were willing to go somewhere else. But that was a very small portion of the po- black population. Lincoln was a yeah. longstanding supporter of black colonization. According to his secretaries, Nicolay and Hay, in the White House, he was a supporter of colonization until he issued the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863. Now, one mm-hmm. scholar named Phil Magnus believes that there is evidence to show that Lincoln was a, a believer in colonization until the day he died. I disagree with, with Magnus, but there is an argument. Uh, there is a debate about that. Okay. Right. Now, um, I would say that there isn't that much of a change in Lincoln's mind with regards to colonization between 1852 and 1862. And one proof of that is in 1854, two years later, Lincoln is a supporter of colonization, but he shows the problems of it. And this is in a speech, his most 
I would think it's his most important speech next to the Gettysburg Address and Second Inaugural. It's a speech that he delivers in Peoria, Illinois in 1854 of October um, when he's responding to the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act of Stephen Douglas. And we have to talk about Mm -hmm. Stephen Douglas in a second. So anyway, in that speech, he says that his gut, to, to solve, if you will, the race problem in the United States, his gut reaction would be colonization. But then he explains why colonization wouldn't work. But he still supports colonization halfway through his presidency. So I don't think it's an opinion that Lincoln really shakes off until the emancipation, and it's during the time of war. Now, why? Here's the question. Why is Lincoln a supporter of colonization? Why does he make that one of the focuses, one of the foci of his 1852 eulogy to Henry Clay? He praises Clay as a colonizationist. And he praises and endorses colonization and even gets Congress to fund it as president because he thinks it's better than what's on the table. And what's on the table is a country that is splitting apart. If it will save the country, it will, if it will preserve the American Union and therewith preserve the only viable system of self-government on the earth, then Lincoln thinks that blacks should be encouraged, not forced, but encouraged to leave and more likely not go to West Africa, not go to Liberia, but go to somewhere in Central America, uh, which even Martin Delaney promoted, uh, somewhere like Panama, where there are places that... Right. Yeah, Kiriki, right. Um, Right. Right. And so what is he doing there? It's not because Lincoln believes blacks are inferior to whites. And it's, it's just one of those classic, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> uh, even when he meets with that black delegation in the White House, the summer where he's already drafted the Emancipation Proclamation and he's waiting to issue it uh, when there's a significant military victory. It doesn't happen until September. We add Antietam. Um, even to that black delegation, what Lincoln is saying is, you know better than I that white people, right or wrong, this, is, this isn't a statement of opinion. This is a statement of fact. Most white people in this country do not like black people, right? He's putting it as politely as he can. He says, even in the most friendly state of this country, you are not treated as equals. And he, he states this with Euclidean precision, almost like it's a mathematical proposition. If you live amongst a majority population that has this distaste for you, doesn't it stand to reason you should consider moving somewhere else? And if you could get the ball rolling on that, we will help you. Right. That's in a nutshell the argument he makes in 1862 in the summer where he is about to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. Why is he doing that? And we have to remember, how do we know that Lincoln says this to these folks? It's not simply because they go home and tell other people. He has a reporter present. In other words, again, consider audience. Lincoln wants the country to know he is having this conversation with important free black Americans. Why does he want not just blacks to know this, but the majority of the population, which is white, especially northern whites? He wants them to know this because he's trying to grease the skids of emancipation. In the United States, emancipation was never a question of just should we have slavery or not. For Americans, it has always been a two-part question. First part is, should we free them? Second part is, then what? And it was the then what that interfered with the first one. (laughs) Whites 
recognize that if we free blacks, then we have to decide, well, are we going to make them our equals? Are we going to keep them in some second-class citizenship status? What are they going to do for a living? All of those sorts of things. And it's that second part of the question that complicated the first. So what Lincoln was trying to tell whites is, don't worry, if I can get black people to think about how practically, viably, they could make a living somewhere else, won't that make you more open to getting to really putting uh, uh, slavery on the course of ultimate extinction? So he, it was the spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down. That's what Lincoln, I believe, was trying to do in August there. Well, here in August 14, 1862, when he speaks to this, this group of black community leaders, there, there's something in that that I don't want to gloss over because we're talking about it. his views of, of race. And he says, see our present condition, the country engaged in war, our white men cutting one another's throats, and then consider what we know to be truth. But for your race among us, there could not be war. Yes. Although many men engaged on either side do not care for you one way or another. Now, how do you talk to a group of elderly gentlemen in leadership? I mean, this to me, there's an arrogance here. But he says, why should the people of your race be colonized and where? Why should they leave this country? This is perhaps the first question for proper consideration. You and we are different races. We yes. have between us a broader difference than exists between almost any other two races. Whether it is right or wrong, I need not to discuss, but this physical difference is a great disadvantage to us both, as I think your race suffers very greatly, many of them, by living amongst us, while ours suffer from your presence. In a yes. word, we suffer on each side. We suffer on many sides. That sounds familiar, many sides. If this <laughs> be admitted, it affords a reason at least why we should be separated. It is better yes. for both, therefore, to be separated. So what, what I'm saying here is that while we can gloss this to say, oh, there are political you know, affronts, uh, there are things that are going on, and you've got to deal with, you know, with it, so, someone like the old Visa commercial, life comes at you fast for everything else, <laughs> MasterCard or Visa, right? But the thing is, look into the words that he's speaking. He's, he's not just talking about colonization. He's actually pushing from, from this comment here, which you can read in the Collected Works of Lincoln, Volume 5, he's pushing separation of the races. Not only ideologically is there a difference for him between the two races, far different than any other two races, but he's saying that if this be admitted, it affords a reason at least why we should be separated. It is better for both, therefore, to be separated. So how do we gloss that to just be well, you know this what, is, there's something of the time and so forth. Because, you know, he, he makes the statement, I'm going to let you respond, but he makes the statement, if I could save the union without freeing any slaves, I would do it. And yes. if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could do it by freeing some and leaving others alone. There's an indifference here with Lincoln where he's, he's almost seeing black people as separate from himself. There's these different, this different species of people and the only thing I'm concerned about as a statement is how do we preserve the United States of America? You know, not so much I'm concerned morally about the oppression of your people, the killing and lynching and raping of your people. I'm more so concerned about making sure America stays afloat. Talk about that a little bit. Yes, first I think that's well put. Um, 
Uh, and, and I'm glad you brought up the public letter to Horace Greeley, which is what you quoted. You know, if I could, you yeah. know, my purpose is, is to save the union. It's neither to free nor to continue the, you know, the enslavement of blacks, et cetera. It's a public letter that he issues in August, excuse me, in, um, yeah, in August, exactly one month before Antietam, mm -hmm. when he already has the, the Emancipation Proclamation drafted. Um, and he's, again, he's using this public letter to shape public opinion so they'll be able to receive emancipation. Um, uh, they would welcome it because a lot of people would not, even in the North. All right, so what is Lincoln doing there? Why does he matter-of-factly, as you put it, indifferently, why is he so matter-of-fact about the differences? What I think Lincoln is doing there, and I don't think, I don't think this is a subtle thing, because you couldn't be less subtle in that conversation he has with, those, uh, with that black delegation. <laughs> he, is, he is looking at it sociologically, if you will. And it's not a question of difference of species. He's not making that argument. Um, he's not a eugenicist in this. He is taking the most superficial basis for slavery in the United States. Right? Slavery has existed from time in, you know, immemorial. Uh, and in the old ancient Roman and Greek times, right, the slaves were the same race as the enslavers. Right? That made emancipation easier back then because the formerly enslaved could glide into society and no one would have any prejudice or stereotype uh, against them because they couldn't tell, right? Unless there were markings, right. and some, sometimes there were. Mm -hmm. The difficulty, mm -hmm. in, in Alexis de Tocqueville, the greatest foreign observer of America, wrote Democracy in America, mm -hmm. he pointed this out. He said, dang, he said, slavery, you know, emancipation in the United States, it will, it will be very different in this country. It's a different problem than the ancient world. The problem in the ancient world was freeing because once you freed, then people were on easy street because they all looked alike. In the United States, the problem with slavery, it's, it's racial. Our, mm -hmm. He says it's going to be easier to get to abolition. What will be hard is freedom. Because during freedom, what will everybody know? That if you look like me, if you look like you, I'm talking about you personally, I'm talking about me personally. If you look at us, mm -hmm. what will we look like? We will mm -hmm. look like former slaves, even though not all blacks were slaves. Most were. Mm -hmm. And it's that association with a servile, degrading, dehumanizing institution. It's that racial association. It's that stigma that will stay for generations. Do I need to tell your listeners that? It's 2000 and what is it, 2020? And we're still having yeah. this conversation? Why are we still having this conversation? Race. That's why we're still having That's this right. conversation. That is what Lincoln is pointing out. He is not saying, man, we're so different. I hate to be you. You should wish be me. He's not. I don't believe he's making a white supremacist argument. What he is saying is, if the difference is so obvious, if the profound basis of slavery on the, in the United States is based on something so superficial as skin color, and that's what's mm -hmm. preventing you free people from exercising the full complement of your God-given natural rights, because the majority mm. white population is still, to some extent or another, depending on where you are in the country, um, uh, uh, white supremacists in their outlook. He's saying, you're, you're, you're kicking against something here that is not going to change in our lifetimes and in the foreseeable what, what, future. Go ahead. I, I, I want to jump in real quick because, you know, we're, we're coming down on our time. We've got about, no! you know, yeah, yeah, we've got about 10 minutes left, but. And, and we could talk about this for hours, as you know, but this special extended episode, I wanted to make sure that we were able to we get, need to, get to Douglas an hour. 
Yeah, yeah. So we're going to do that. And that's why I wanted to, to shift gears real quick is that in September 18th, 1858, in the fourth debate with Douglas, Lincoln makes the statement and says, while I was at the hotel today, an elderly gentleman called upon me to know whether I was really in favor of producing a perfect equality between the Negroes and white people. And there was great laughter in the audience. Because while I had not proposed to myself on this occasion to say much on that subject, yet as the question was asked me, I thought I would occupy perhaps five minutes in saying something in regard to it. So again, look at the indifference. And I'm going to finish this quote, then I'm going to let you respond. Sure. But, you know, again, I'll take, you know, hey, I'll take five minutes. You know, the greatest dilemma of the day, which is the issue between the black and the white race, yeah, I, I wasn't planning on talking about this today, but I'll, I'll spend five minutes on it. So he says, I will say then that I am not, nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way, in any way, the yes. social and political equality of the white and black races. And there's applause in the audience that I am not, nor ever have been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say in addition to this that there's a physical difference, physical difference yes, between let's get the to white it. and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together in terms of social and political equality. Now, in that statement, Dr. Morell, not only does he disrespect the, the largest issue of the time, which is the issue of race, but I know that you're going to say, that, you know, from having talked with you in the past that, you know, hey, he's in the middle of a political debate. He's focusing on some different issues. But here's, here's the problem. When you put statements like that along with the other parts of the Lincoln-Douglas debate where he makes fun of Douglas by saying Douglas needs laws to prevent his, his uh, supporters from intermarrying and miscegenating with Negroes, yeah. I'm not from that school of thought at all. I don't need laws to keep me separate from black women. I have no desire for it at all. There's this great physical difference, which you say he's not a eugenicist, and I don't put that on him, but he's saying more than just, hey, I noticed that you're black and I'm white. This man is clearly making the statement that white people and black people are genetically different. They're racially different. There's a difference that exists that's so vast that the two can never be equal and that he has never never, never, never pushed for such social and political equality. I, I, I wait to hear from you. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right. So what is Lincoln doing here? By the way, that's not the only time he says he brings up the physical difference. He did it in, in fact, the opening uh, debate at Ottawa in August. So mm -hmm. the, the fact of him pointing out a quote unquote physical difference um, this isn't a rare thing for Lincoln. He said it right. on multiple occasions. Now, what forces him to do that? And I say force, I mean, why does he think politically he's compelled uh, to do that? He's compelled to do that because he is uh, um, opposing an incumbent senator, the most famous Democrat in the United States. In 1858 mm -hmm. is Stephen Douglas. He is the odds-on favorite to lead the Democratic Party two years hence, to be president of the United States. He was a leading contender in 56 and actually led on a ballot for a while during their convention and, and ultimately lost because he couldn't get two thirds of a vote, um, two thirds of majority. Same thing, same rule will apply in 1860. Anyway, so the leading Democrat, Stephen Douglas, 
makes it emphatically clear that he is not um, in favor of uh, uh, equal rights uh, for blacks. In other words, he says, and, and he's explicit about this, he says that the country is based on um, what he calls the white basis. Uh, he says, I'm a, this is Stephen Douglas, so this is the context for Lincoln's remarks. Stephen Douglas says this in the opening speech, uh, I am opposed to Negro citizenship in any and every form. I believe this government was made on the white basis. I believe it was made by white men for the benefit of white men and their posterity forever. I am in favor of confining citizenship to white men, men of European birth and descent, instead of conferring it upon Negroes, Indians, and other inferior races. I do mm -hmm. not regard the Negro as my equal, positively deny that he is my brother or any kin to me, whatever. So this is Douglas. And by the way, the context for Douglas saying this is his interpretation of the Declaration of Independence. Both right. men claim the Declaration, they wrap themselves in the mantle of the spirit of 76. That's his interpretation of all men are created equal. What's weird, odd, what should be more remarkable to us is not so much that Lincoln allows the word physical, the phrase physical difference to come out of his mouth. I'm going to get to that in a second. It's the fact that Lincoln stands up for the natural rights of blacks in the Declaration of Independence. Lincoln actually thinks all men really does mean all men. He says um, there's no reason in the world. This is right after he, he says that comment about physical difference in the first speech at Ottawa. He says there's no mm -hmm. reason in the world, this is Lincoln, why the Negro is not entitled to all the natural rights enumerated in the Declaration of Independence, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, I hold that he is as much entitled to these as the white men. I mm. agree with Judge Douglas. He's not my equal in many respects. And then now you're waiting for it. You're like, oh, <laughs> tell us what those respects are. Watch what he does. What? Ready? Uh -huh. Certainly not in color. And then he leaves it. He goes on to say, perhaps, in other words, Maybe, maybe not. Not in moral and intellectual adoptment. But here's his bottom line. Uh -huh. But in the right uh -huh. to earn the bread without the leave of anybody else, which his own hand earns, he is my equal, the equal of Judge uh -huh. Douglas and the equal of every living man. Here is my question. If Lincoln is a different shade, shall we say, of white supremacist than Stephen Douglas, he's kind of a lower grade. Douglas is like right. all caps to 11 white supremacists and Lincoln is what, right. a five, a three, a two? What would you give him? Right. Why on earth does he stand up for blacks and natural rights? Why does he bring up – why does he read them, if you will, into the Declaration of Independence in an election year where not a single black person in Illinois has the right to vote? Whose vote is, yep. he, is, he, is he trying to garner here? So for Stephen Douglas, Lincoln sees the front burner question for America – in this Senate debate with Illinois Senator Stephen Douglas, between two men who live in the free state of Illinois, the front burner question isn't whether we should get rid of slavery in the South. The front burner question is, what do free white people of the North think is owed to black people? And if they believe with Douglas that the basis of this country is white, and Lincoln did not say, in fact, he emphatically said the opposite, that the basis of rights in this country is nature human nature, not race, if whites of the North who aren't interested in owning slaves are persuaded, come to be persuaded by Stephen Douglas, that it doesn't matter what happens to black people in the federal territories, 
Go ahead and let slavery expand there. Lincoln is showing people, if you let this happen, what will happen is slavery will become legal, not just in the federal territory. It will become legal everywhere. That is the front burner question for Lincoln. And therefore, he puts an emphasis on all the other ways that aren't front burner questions. Lincoln says, if I can't even get free white people north of the Mason-Dixon line in Illinois, for crying out loud, to see that on a very profound and fundamental way, they have no more natural rights than the black men. How can I even begin to have a conversation about civil rights, about political rights? That's a conversation he does not have. He say out loud. He doesn't say out loud in the United States until the Civil War is almost over, and he suggests it because he can't impose it as president. He suggests it in his last public address, or what people call his last public address, in April of 1865. Right, so for right. me, his debate with Douglas is the pivot upon which America's future as a truly equal society stands. He now, loses now, if he loses that debate with Douglas, Douglas becomes not doesn't he of course he loses in terms of the, the, the Senate, he loses to, to Douglas, Douglas remains senator. He loses in eighteen sixty to Stephen Douglas. Slavery will become legal in the United States throughout all the states. And guess what? And this is why Lincoln called it insidious, his word. It's insidious. Douglas is no, in, indifference about what happens to black people in federal territories. Slavery will become national without anybody making an argument in favor of it. It will happen because of national indifference. And that's what crushes Lincoln. So Lincoln leaves it open, what he means by physical difference, the most specific. And you can search every word of the collected word, uh, works of Abraham Lincoln. I've done most of it. It's not that much. Uh-huh. What he, the most specific he ever gets about um, the difference between white people and black people is what I just read to you, color. He never says they are naturally <laughs> inferior. Wait, now what's the year of the doc- – can you give the document you're reading from the year and, and, and the which uh, the, debate? His interpretation of the Declaration? That is the first joint debate at Ottawa, the first of the seven Douglas, uh, Lincoln-Douglas debates, August 21, 1858. Uh, okay. Remember that the, the Douglas gets an hour – at the beginning, Lincoln responds for an hour and a half, and then Douglas responds with a rejoinder for a half hour. So they both get an hour and a half. And that first debate, Lincoln mentions physical difference. Right. And then he brings up, and it won't be the last time, he brings up that according to the Declaration of Independence, the Negro, to use their locution, the Negro has the same rights as Douglas and Lincoln and any white man. September, a month later, he makes the statement and says, I am not is- nor ever have been in favor this is yes. uh, uh, Lincoln's speech, uh, speech uh, fourth debate, Charleston, Illinois, September 18th, 1858. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he says, I'm not ever, uh, that I am not nor ever have been in favor of making voters the jurors of Negroes, right? Nor of qualifying them to, own, uh, to hold office, to intermarry yes. with white people. And I will say in addition that this is, that there is a physical difference between white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid. I read that earlier. He says, and as much as they cannot so live while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior. And as much as they cannot so live while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. I say upon this occasion 
I do not perceive that because the white man is to have the superior position, the Negro should be denied everything. I do not understand that because I do not want a Negro woman for a slave, I must necessarily want her for a wife. There's cheers and laughter. My understanding is that I can just let her alone. I'm now yes. in my 50th year, and I certainly never have had a black woman for either a slave or a wife, so it seems to me quite possible for us to get along without making either slaves or wives of Negroes. I will add to this that I have never seen, to my knowledge, a man, woman, or child who was in favor of producing a perfect equality, social and political, between yes. Negroes and white men. So we have to deal as a historian, we go with what was stated later when we're looking at the particular perspective of an individual because there's development and historical change uh, uh, sure. and development over time. Sure. My point here is that while you, um, you know, intend to have us, you know, see Lincoln, and I, and, I, and I think that it's powerful what you've done. I think it's, it's been very beneficial what you've done to, to allow us to see Lincoln politically to see the pressures that he was under, to see him as an individual as a part as opposed to just part of a big system of white supremacy. Right. But there's still an issue with Lincoln as a moral person by this time period in 1858. And having been fully exposed at this time to not only the rudiments of American slavery, but also seeing the deleterious effects of American slavery upon all people, there has to be a greater stand than to say that socially or politically he does not believe and never has purpose to bring equality for Negroes. I think that that is uh, in direct contrast to what you stated a little bit earlier. And what I want you to do in the last moments of the show is I want you to just pull together and capsulate in one or two minutes how do you as a Lincoln scholar, a person that, that sees Lincoln as, as a great man, uh, how do you pull together that even in his latter discussions from 1858 to 1862, 63, even in the preliminary emancipation, he still continues to promote the idea that these people are not our equals, that he's not looking to bring about social or political equality, that there are physical differences amongst these races of people, and that he really personally is indifferent towards black folks and would never even think about having them as friends or as family members, et cetera. How do you pull all of that together to let us see the Lincoln that you would like us to walk away from the program seeing? Um, I wouldn't characterize it in quite the stark terms that you you have, but I'll I'll let that stand. That's good. We both okay. had uh, have had time to to make our positions and, and elaborate on them, which is great. I appreciate you giving me the time to do that. Um, yes, I, I would say that uh, what what Lincoln notice the 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 tenses that Lincoln uses. He talks about present and past. He doesn't say in the future. Douglas says basically he's he's their their year's version of George Wallace right segregation yesterday segregation today segregation forever uh Lincoln never says the way Douglas says that in the that he uh, that that this is just flat out a white country and will always be a white country he disagrees vehemently with the Dred Scott opinion of the previous year 1857 which said that blacks were um had no rights that the white man was bound to respect i mean that's a quote verbatim from Taney Douglas agrees with Taney Lincoln vehemently disagrees, and Lincoln is doing everything he can 
to shore up among the white majority, which is the political majority, which is the majority that has power in this country. He is trying to shore up their understanding of their own rights. If they fall prey to the notion that they have rights, they are numerically, not just numerically superior, but naturally superior because of their race, then America will become a country Lincoln does not recognize. That will not be the country he thought Washington, slave owner that he was, Jefferson, slave owner that he was, Madison, slave owner that he was. That was not the country they thought they were establishing. Lincoln thinks that whites have to reclaim the spirit of 76, the spirit that all men are naturally born equal to one another, and that by consent, we find our way to justice. We find our way to protecting what we all possess equally, the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. I thank you for for taking the time today. Sure. You know, I I know that this is an extended episode because we normally do about 35 minutes, but I knew that there would be no way to be able to address this with depth and with the ability for all of the parts of history to be heard unless we extended the time. And so the jury's still out for me as far as uh, where we uh, deal with with Lincoln uh, specifically. But I think that we've been able to pull in the different sides and the different perspectives on Lincoln for our audience to be able to make the final determination of what they feel. And I would say to everyone that's listening that we gave you the actual text, we gave you the speeches, we gave you the books from where you could find this information. So you need to go back and you need to read these things for yourself yes. so that you can ensure that we were giving you what was real because, you know, in studying Lincoln, I came across this quote that people were using on the internet that I've never found to be related to Lincoln at all. There's been no conclusive proof of anything that I could find. There are a lot of things that have been attributed to Lincoln that he was, that he supposedly said that has either been read out of context or some things have been associated with him that, that have no basis in truth at all. So, as those who are presenting the vehicle of scholarship for the listener, I hope all of you go back, research, study, do the work, do the due diligence yourself so that you can come to some conclusions about your views and thoughts about Abraham Lincoln. Dr. Morell, it always is a pleasure speaking with you, man. We can talk for hours Ditto. at a time. And, you know, I just I really enjoy uh, your perspective, and I thank you for being um, with us today on Leading by History. And to those of us from Leading by History, we say to you, peace. Peace. Thank you for tuning in to the Leading by History podcast. We look forward to getting back with you again. Until then, keep a leveled head and always investigate the sources. Peace. <laughs>